This is The Kicker, CJR's podcast about all things media. I'm Pete Vernon. I'm joined this week by CJR Tao editor Sam Thielman, who is just back from two weeks in Iraq. We'll get into his time over there and hear about the state of the free press in Iraq in our second topic. But first, Bob Woodward's fear, Trump in the White House, is on shelves now, and Woodward is on a press tour. The book, as you probably know, contains detailed reporting on dysfunction within the administration, what Woodward calls, quote, a nervous breakdown of the executive power of the most powerful country in the world. One of the most interesting questions from a journalistic perspective, I think, in this book is the sourcing that Woodward uses. It's the same technique that he has employed for numerous other books about other presidencies where he gets hundreds of hours of tape. He talks to dozens of sources, if not hundreds of sources. And then he tells the story as if you, the reader, are with him as a fly on the wall in the White House or the Pentagon or the various rooms that he takes you into. With this administration, though, the idea of anonymous sources has become sort of a hot button topic. Well, everybody's so awful. (laughs) (laughs) With their relation to the truth or alternative facts. Yeah. And just in general to each other. I mean, Rob Porter comes off really well in this book, despite having, you know, been credibly accused of viciously beating his wife. Right. And that incident is given about two paragraphs late in the book, which chronologically makes sense for it to come later. But he is cast, as you said, as kind of a stabilizing force, an honest broker. Reince Priebus, who was widely derided as the first chief of staff, is now a beleaguered but well-meaning figure um, because it seems like he talked to Woodward a lot also. Well, you see all these photos of Priebus from a few months ago, just kind of like even as he's like on his way out of the White House, just kind of looking smug. And you kind of wonder if he's just thinking to himself, I'm talking to Bob this afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) But what are we to make of the idea that we trust Bob Woodward, I think, yeah. right? We both agree I that think so, yeah. <laughs> the most prominent nonfiction well, yeah, journalist no, I of mean, his era. It sounds like a joke, but I, I do I do think, um, I mean, he was criticized, and I think not totally unfairly, for uh, doing the same kind of access stuff with the Bush White House, which was prosecuting two, like, horrifying wars that still aren't over and had undone a lot of the norms that um, the Trump administration is continuing to, uh, to exploit. So, yes, I mean, of course, you know, we do... I, I don't think I don't think anything in there is a lie, but I do think that you, you have a sense with Woodward that you have to sort of read carefully, um, as you should anything, and maybe try and do some of the work that I kind of wish he would do to characterize the sources who are working with him. I, I guess in a way that's maybe more forthright with the reader. It's interesting because in the other Woodward books I've read, and I can't say that I've read all of them. They're like twenty of them. You. Uh, he very much is a fly on the wall. There are not many judgments. There's not a lot of I. He'll pop into the story now and then. But he makes some pretty sweeping criticisms and, and draws some pretty sweeping conclusions about the Trump White House. What did you feel like were the really intense ones? I mean, he says right in the, the prologue that this is a nervous breakdown of a presidency. The idea that Trump is constantly depicted as being unable to process information, unable to remember things, willing to say one thing, I I hold this position, be told, no, you don't. And he says, oh, that's fine. I'll make that work. (laughs) Um, And Woodward draws 
some of his own conclusions kind of in the writing makes judgments in ways that I hadn't seen him before. And, he, and he's talked about this in the whirlwind media tour he's on, that he does consider this a tipping point in American history. Well, and I, I mean, thank God. I mean, I, I feel like you've, there's way too much sort of conventional, normal, it's just another Tuesday beltway coverage of the Trump administration. And I do think that is a great thing that the, the Woodward book hopefully will do is sort of send out a message that like, in fact, President Guy from The Apprentice is a real problem. <laughs> he's, he's not going to stop being a problem. There's nothing magical about the office of the presidency that is going to cause him to ascend to some sort of like, you know, glorified heights of Mount Rushmore where he suddenly understands that he can't keep fucking up. He's he's just going to keep you on mean doing it. He's forever. not going to pivot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, there, there will never be the day that Donald Trump finally becomes president. It's not coming. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, I, and I, I got to say that some of the just the excerpts I've read, they're so valuable. And, you know, Woodward knows that just the stuff about Gary Cohn stealing letters off his desk. But um, those nuggets are worth so much. They're just they're solid gold. And um, that, I think, is is I can see why as a writer you would be like, this is worth like soft peddling Porter being a like a vicious, violent jerk. Right. And that's the trade off, right? Yeah. Is you want people to go on the record, but obviously people aren't going to say the same things on the record. Yeah. Woodward was talking with Michael Schmidt of the New York Times about this and he said, you know, people just won't be as honest yeah. on the record. And he actually mentioned that some of his sources who said one thing to him in the book then called him and said you got this a thousand percent right. right. Have then turned around in public and said, "No, well, yeah. I didn't say those things. I don't know where that came from, yeah, where he course. got that." Um, so, this idea of anonymous sources, and I think some journalists have tried very hard to redefine what that means. They are not anonymous to Bob Woodward. Right. Uh, they are confidential. They yeah. are anonymous to us, the yeah. the audience. Although at times you can clearly see <laughs> this is uh, Gary Cohn giving his yeah. take on things. A source in the room. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, do you think that a broader audience that is not steeped in journalism terms and uh, in this profession, do you think they get what you just talked about, reading between the lines and seeing and understanding? No, not at all. That's one of the reasons. I, I that's one of the reasons it troubles me. Um, I I don't think people are. I don't think the general public is going to read that book and and be skeptical about uh, the levels about, about the way people who gave Woodward access are portrayed versus the way people who didn't are portrayed. I mean, I think that furthers in some cases it just triages the damage these guys have done to themselves, like with Porter. But in others, like with uh, like with Steve Bannon, I I worry that that is furthering his sort of publicity project, which is, you know, is like a world tour, like a literal world tour now. And I, I, I'm, I'm less comfortable with that. Um, I do think there needs to be a historical document. I also kind of agree with, I, th I think it's Janet Malcolm who, who says that, uh, and I'm going to mangle this quote here, that any reporter who doesn't understand that what they're doing is on some level just inexcusable is, is kidding himself. And Woodward's not that guy. Woodward understands that what he's doing is on some level inexcusable. And I think that that's what makes him great at his job. But again, I, I, I worry about the knock-on effects for some of these guys who are able to sort of use the access they gave him to further their own malign causes, Bannon in particular. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Bannon because I read the, all those excerpts as they came out last week. And then this week, Dovin and have just finished up reading the whole book. I was very much struck by the way that Steve Bannon, visionary campaigner, comes across <laughs> in the first third of the book. 
And it's obvious that he spoke with uh, Woodward, not shockingly, because he, as we've seen, speaks with he anybody speaks with and everyone. Yeah, yeah. He'll probably well, be on the podcast next week. <laughs> we'll call him up and see if we can get him on here. It's but not, uh, We're not going to do that. No, we're not going to do that. I just want to be clear. We're not going to do that. But it is, it is interesting in that these are not Bannon said, Bannon told me. It's here's a scene I'm depicting of Bannon doing these things, saying this thing, although it's not attributed to him, it's right. just attributed to this omniscient narrator. And I do wonder about the limitations of that style. Those limitations have always been there, but it seems like specifically when you're dealing with characters who have proven that they have won an agenda. Okay, well, mm-hmm. all pol- pol- political figures have agendas. But figures that have a loose relationship with the truth. I just wonder if in this era, the lines of acceptability about these people being used in the same sort of journalistic setting that previous administration figures were used in, whether that was Bush or Obama, have those lines changed? Should Steve Bannon get to be an anonymous source and kind of depict himself in certain scenes where there is no other person to corroborate things? in the way that Steve Bannon chooses to. Well, and I speak for myself here and nobody else, but yes, I think they've changed radically. I, I mean, on the one hand, Bannon represents a sort of a strain of conservatism of kind of intellectual far-right religiosity that has certainly been present in previous administrations, especially the Bush and Reagan administrations. But I don't think it's ever been as explicit. And that, is, that to my mind, is is dangerous enough to merit some kind of response beyond just sort of letting ideas fight each other in the gladiatorial arena of the press. I think it's just not quite right to treat all politicians with agendas as though all those agendas are, you know, equal. I mean, it's true that maybe Ron Wyden would act in similar ways to Steve Bannon under similar circumstances, but Ron Wyden has a generally like benign agenda that I think will probably result in greater freedom for people and more generalized happiness. Steve Bannon wants a white ethno state. <laughs> and like the you know, good things and bad things are different. You have to treat them differently based on their perspective. Um, and that does that requires you to take a stand in a way that I think a lot of journalists of Woodward's generation are very uncomfortable with. But Woodward himself is a very courageous figure, and, and I, I hope that he's equal to the time. I, he's certainly a better journalist than I am, and so it would be hard for me to pass judgment on him. But I, I, I worry seeing the failure of other people I really respect in the same sort of venues where they've otherwise been really, like, trenchant and useful. Uh, Errol Morris had, a, had his documentary about Robert McNamara, which is a kind of triumph and, and um, damns McNamara out of his own mouth. And then he tries to do the same thing with Bannon and, and fails really badly. Um, the, you know, the, the reviews of this movie coming out of the Tribeca Film Festival uh, in the last couple of weeks have been, have been really bad. So I worry that we need figures from a different generation to kind of do battle with this new strain of nationalist politician that is very unsubtle about its horrifying racist nationalist and and warlike goals. It's also interesting, though, because a journalist of Woodward's generation, specifically like the Bob Woodward, Carl Bernstein, contributed to bring down administration. What we get from that is a trust and a level of kind of handing over of power. Yes, we still read the book closely, Mm -hmm. but when the book has Bob Woodward's name on the front, it just engenders a level of believability yeah. uh, and a sort of acceptance that 
hey, we understand no one's going to get the whole truth, but this guy's going to get it closer than just about anyone else. Well, and some of that is sort of, I hope we don't all die of secondhand trust, which uh, <laughs> is being imputed to people like Steve Bannon and Rob Porter because Woodward's name carries so much weight. Yeah, well, as Trump said, he's always been fair. He's always been fair. All right, shifting gears in our second topic, you just returned from Iraq. I, I mentioned did. this earlier, uh, but how was it? It was great. And um, what were you doing there? Uh, I was. I guess we should get to the journalism yeah, side of things. Sure. So, uh, so a few months ago. Um, People come and, and tour the Columbia Journalism School pretty regularly from various countries, and uh, a group of Iraqi journalists came uh, to the J School, and um, I was asked to go down and just talk to them about the Tau Center, which does a lot of work on digital, which is you know which is the Tau Center for digital journalism, and I gave kind of a stock lecture I give to uh, people I know in newsrooms about you know personal information security and uh, and source protection, and um, people seem to enjoy it, and. Uh, and apparently there was some back and forth once these folks got back to Iraq. And one of the guys turned out to work for the U.S. Embassy. And he uh, asked them to bring me over to give a version of that lecture to groups of journalists, uh, to a very interesting nonprofit called Tech for Peace that's kind of the Iraqi Snopes, and then to, to various university students. So I thought it was just going to be a few days in Baghdad, but it turned out to be two weeks, one uh, going up and down Kurdistan, which was fascinating, and another in Baghdad, which was uh, a little bit frightening and in which I was confined to my hotel. But, it, you know, it's a, a really wonderful experience overall. So I'm interested, because I don't know much about it at all, in the state of the press in Iraq. I assume that under Saddam Hussein up until 2003, there wasn't much of one. Right. There's just state media up until 2003, and then there's just this amazing kind of effloration of every kind of media. There's new television stations, there's websites, there's blogs. There are legacy newspapers that have been around for a long time um, and that are, you know, are, are suddenly freer. And, and a lot of this because I think, it, it's funny because one of the things you see is the damage that censorship does generations on because state media was so powerful under Saddam that every political party immediately said, okay, well, we need a news outlet too. We need a TV station. We need a newspaper. We need a website. And so there's very little media in Iraq that's actually independent, um, despite there not being state-run media anymore. It's run by the various political parties. And the political parties go back millennia. In Kurdistan, they also have kind of aligned police forces and so forth that are units of this um, broader Kurdish police force called the Peshmerga. Uh, one guy I talked to was actually uh, mentioned in, a, I believe, a Human Rights Commission uh, report from a few years ago because he wrote about the Peshmerga just summarily executing two unarmed ISIS guys by the side of the road. And he said, you know, we shouldn't execute unarmed people. We should send them to trial. And then, you know, if they're sentenced to death, they're sentenced to death. Um, so, we, you know, he wasn't not, not a terribly radical thing from our perspective. And I think very similar to what we would think of as like a police shooting story. But he was thrown in prison for it. And then he was blacklisted from the journalists' unions, and so he can't freelance anywhere. And so all of his material lives on Facebook. And as I traveled around Iraq, one of the things I learned to my horror was that despite going there with the sense that Facebook ought to be shut down tomorrow and the world would be no poorer, Iraq and many countries like it, just in terms of the development of their uh, media, desperately need Facebook in order for the independent media to 
flourish and survive. But they also suffer from fake news in a way that is much, much, much worse than anything we deal with here. So it's interesting that you had your uh, assumptions challenged at least halfway uh, by the, yeah. <laughs> the vital nature of Facebook. What were the big things that they were interested in asking you? So um, one thing they were really interested in was uh, how to combat fake news, which mm. I, I answered as best I could. But, you know, we have problems with that here, too. Yeah, if you could solve that, yeah. I'm sure Mark Zuckerberg would like <laughs> yes, to talk to you. I'm sure he would. Um, my my, my uh, consulting fee schedule is um, exorbitant. <laughs> um, but no, uh, but it, a lot of it had to do with verification. And, you know, how can we tell if this image is fake and how can we tell if this image is sort of a miscaptioned thing that's been uh, re-uploaded from a, another war crime in a different country? five years ago, which is the sort of thing that happens all the time. And there are ways to do that. There are ways to look at um, EXIF metadata, which are the, the qualities assigned that are invisible that are assigned to a photo by the camera that takes it. But a lot of this stuff just gets pulled out uh, and, and scraped off when uh, things get uploaded to Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Google. Yeah, uh, and I'm not checking that yeah. when I see something. Well, no, on nobody, nobody is. But but then you also you can't anymore. Like they make mm. it impossible. And um, the problem is that while a lot of this is doable, and Tech for Peace, this um, Iraqi nonprofit, is doing it in ways that I'm just stunned by and 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 you know, deeply admire. Um, speed is so so important, and it's so hard to achieve when you're trying to write about something that's getting. 300,000, you know, views. And in some cases, these guys are dealing with life and death. Like, they're hearing that ISIS may be moving into the village near theirs, you know, outside I was going to say, the consequences of fake news there seem much more immediate, well, they, as they are in other places in the world, than perhaps in America. They absolutely are. And even if you don't know that what you're reading is, is true, the consequences of declining to act on it, should it turn out to be true, are, are really dire. Um, so there's, there's so much, I guess, desperation around this and so much need to combat it. And then at the same time, uh, I spoke to both Iraqi officials and journalists who were like, yeah, we publish fake news. It furthers our interests. Hmm. Um, which really shocked me, actually. Um, a, a journalist in one session uh, a couple of days before I left was like, yeah, we publish doctored photos all the time. They show the evils of ISIS. And I had to be like, well, they, but, but they, they don't show the evils of right. ISIS. I mean, they show something completely different that you're telling your readers are the evils of ISIS. Um, you know, there's a sense that there's so little baseline trust anyway that you might as well lie if you think it'll further your aims. And I think that that's a product of the despair brought on by endless war. I mean, it's a place that has a lot of where it's you can understand why people find it so hard to hope. Um, there's just there's not a lot of drinking water. There's um, there were riots and and fires throughout Basra while I was there because the drinking water there had been so salty that they you know people couldn't couldn't drink it. Uh, and you know Basra is just sort of a thin layer of sand on top of a giant pool of oil. And every international oil company in the world is down there, and the government is so kind of nakedly corrupt that they don't provide basic amenities for the people who live there while their big natural resource is getting sucked away. So it was very sad. It wasn't discouraging exactly because the younger people are are very energetic about this stuff and they really want to fix it. But you do get the sense that a lot of it is really intractable and that the West kind of doesn't understand or want to understand what it's done. 
Are there organizations that are trying to build some sort of journalistic understanding about baseline standards so that people aren't producing doctored photos? I just the idea of creating a media ecosystem in the 21st century where only state media has existed before is really interesting to me. Well, and it's not that it was it's not that exclusively state media like there were underground newspapers and so forth, but I think as with like media literacy, it's very hard to convince people that they are the ones who are doing it wrong. Uh, hmm. And I think the sort of slightly abstract devotion to the truth as a concept that we get in Western journalism um, maybe seems like a luxury to some of these people because they they feel very strongly that they want to see immediate results on a particular topic that is of interest to them and may be vital to their readership. It was interesting because, I, I, you know, I took the question about why shouldn't we public do- publish doctored photos in real time, and I had to kind of come up with a rationale for telling the truth. And um, the best I could do, and I think it's probably okay, is that, like, eventually it will come out that you lied, and when it does, your readers won't trust you anymore. And, in fact... We're a lot more sanctimonious about it here, but we do that kind of thing in American media. Time published that photo of that little girl crying who had, in fact, not been detained at the border. And then they published a sort of non-apology about it, saying it pointed to a larger truth. Piers Morgan published doctored photos of British soldiers torturing Iraqi prisoners at the, uh, I believe, the Daily Mirror and then was, you know, summarily fired for it. He also said something like, oh, you know, there was a generalized true thing that this kind of indicated when he was interviewed by Anderson Cooper and went, after he went to see Well, Michael Wolff, going back to our yeah. earlier conversation mm-hmm. about presidential books, the idea was that, well, maybe he didn't get all the details exactly yeah. right, but uh, he got at a larger truth. Right. And there, there is... There, Truth is the same size everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's there's no such thing as a larger truth. Um, if you make a mistake, you have to apologize. And um, that, I, I mean, it, it was it was useful to remember those examples when talking to people who were like saying stuff in much balder terms than I was used to hearing. But more generally, I, I think with continuity comes professionalization. You know, you need uninterrupted decades of a free press that's allowed to publish and um, doesn't have to live in fear of government censorship or being murdered, frankly. And hopefully that will come to Iraq. And I, I hope it comes I hope it comes quickly and soon. And I, I you know, hope they let me go back so that I can help further it if possible. Well, I look forward to hearing about your next trip over there. So, <laughs> Sam, thanks so much for coming down to talk. Thank you for having me. That was our show. Thanks for kicking with us. Thanks to Sam Thielman for talking through the news of the week with me and sharing his experiences in Iraq. Please check out all the great work we've got up at CJRA.org, and we'll see you next week. 